0: Play ball. Round the internet we go, where we end up no one knows. Sit back and enjoy the show, down the baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole. Hello, and welcome to another inning, Down the Baseball Rabbit Hole. The show where I ask a question of the internet and follow the rabbit holes that it opened. This is the fifth inning of the second game and it is brought to you by wonderful humans like David Elliott and Sean O'Hare who sent me some money on PayPal because they went looking for my Patreon and apparently I don't have that set up properly. I really, really do appreciate it and hey, for anybody else out there, feel free to drop me a dime in the PayPal bucket if you feel like it would be a good idea. But right now, it's time to get down in the rabbit hole. Recently, I returned to the bleachers out in Wrigley Field for the first time in many years. I took my family and we sat in the sun over in Wright Field. Yes, I like sitting in Wright Field. And the idea dawned on me to look up a little Wrigley Field bleacher history. All right. All right. Wigman Park was built in 1914 as the home of the Chicago Federals, or the Shy feds as they were known. Charles Wigman built his ballpark with the help of Zachary Taylor Davis, who had also built Comiskey Park on the south side a few years earlier. The original field had a much different look to it than it does now. First off, it was only one level in the grandstand. Due to the constraints of the streets and the surrounding buildings, Wigman Park was only about 300 feet down the right and left field lines, with a center field that stretched 450 feet to the wall. Actually, kind of a corner. The scoreboard was a part of the left field wall, and is not the same one we see today. After the first series in the ballpark, the Shy feds realized the left field fence was a little too short, so they moved it back 25 feet, right onto the porch of an old seminary building. Yes, Wrigley Field was built on a block that had once been a religious seminary. I don't know what type or whatever. I didn't decide to follow that rabbit hole. They actually had to tear off the porch of the seminary building to be able to relocate the fence that far back. Home runs would now bounce off the building or possibly right through the windows because the fence was so close. Bleachers in the original ballpark of 1914 were located only in right Field. There's another reason right field bleachers are better. They were the originals. The bleachers look completely different today, though. Back then, they were in sort of a standalone box that actually extended out into the field of play in the middle of right field. There was a pretty large gap between the end of the bleachers and the right field foul line where the ball would still be in play. Imagine the right field well that is there now if it was like three times wider And then imagine another well sort of towards center field where the walls just kind of went to a point and it was just a big square right there on the field. By the way, the fact that there were no bleachers in left field didn't really keep people from sitting there. As was fairly normal for the time, people would literally sit on the field behind a rope that signified a home run. That changed in 1915. As Wiegman tore down the seminary building, added left-field bleachers over the off-season, and built up the capacity of his ballpark from 14,000 to 18,000. With the bleachers in left field, the original scoreboard, a large square-shaped thing, moved over to center field, where it would stay until 1937. And just so I get the picture right in your head, the field was not rounded like it is today. Imagine a left field with the foul pole sitting about 30 feet closer to home in left field and about 50 feet closer in right field. Then imagine a straight wall extending out from those two poles to center field until they touched. It was a very pointy center field that was about about 50 feet deeper than it is today. And the entire thing was in play, so sometimes guys had to run all the way back. It did get significantly shorter in 1915, they cut it about 25 feet because that's where they put the scoreboard so that you could see it better, and so that it would be out of the way of the left field bleachers. Also, there was no brick wall. That actually comes later in the story. The wall was made of wood any place that there weren't wooden bleachers, and the bleachers had a wire mesh fence that the people closest to the field had to look through. The bleachers actually sat right on the field, like I said for right field, same with left field, and they had playable areas on either side of them. In left field, the field was playable from the end of the bleachers to the center field corner, and right field, as I said earlier, was pretty much the same. It created two large chunks of outfield that were about 30 feet deeper than the front row of the bleachers, but still playable. Well, I guess it kind of made three sections or one in left, one in right, and then the center field kind of was just one between them. Over the next seven years, the Federal League fell apart. Charles Wiegman purchased the Cubs and then lost the Cubs as he fell on hard times financially, and one of the minority shareholders, William Wrigley, was able to buy up all the shares as Wiegman and the other partners faltered. In 1922, Wrigley initiated the first major renovation of what was now known as Cubs Park rather than Wigman Park. Sure, renovations. We've seen tons of renovations at Wrigley Field over the last decade. Well, we didn't see re- renovations like this. I mean, maybe nobody alive has. Wrigley was expanded from 18,000 seats to 31,000 seats without tearing down the old ballpark. William Wrigley brought Zachary Taylor Davis back to work on this project. They cut the grandstand into three pieces and put the middle and third base side on wheels and then moved them. The centerpiece moved directly west about 60 feet, creating a longer right field line. It was also rotated three degrees to make it fit better with the third base side, which had moved about a hundred feet northwest. I know it's hard to imagine this in your head, but the original position of home plate was two-thirds of the way down the first base line almost to where we see the coach's box now. The bleachers were redone at this time as well, with both sides getting expanded bleachers from the center field scoreboard almost to the grandstand. The new dimensions of the field were 318 to right field. 320 to left field, and a full 446 feet to the center field scoreboard. It only remained that way for a few seasons. A lot of people were complaining about the short porch in left field. Just like when Wigman had to move the left field fence back right after the very first homestand, Cubs Park tore out part of the left field bleachers mid-season in 1925, which made the new line 364 feet. And the left field bleachers did not start right at the line anymore. They were in deep left field to left center field with about a thousand less seats and a large new area in the left field corner that was now playable. People loved Cubs Park and they were getting almost 900,000 visitors each season. After the 1926 season, two big changes were planned. The first is that it was renamed Cubs Park became Wrigley Field. And then they added a second level to the grandstand. The Cubs could now seat 40000 a game. Well, they could in 1928, because only the third base side of the second level was completed before the 1927 season. Despite this, they were the first team to draw over a million fans in one season. And in 1929, combined with an actual good team and a completed second level, the Cubs hit the 1.5 million mark, which was the MLB record for 17 years, and the Cubs record for another 40 years. Also in 1929, the Cubs went to the World Series. So, temporary bleachers were actually added for the World Series in both left and right fields. Waveland and Sheffield Avenue were both blocked off to allow the new bleachers that held another 10,000 fans to get the attendance up to 50000 per World Series game. This setup was used again in 1932 and in 1935. Sadly, none of the people sitting in those temporary bleachers ever saw a Cubs World Series there, as we all know. In 1932, William Wrigley died and passed on the ownership of the Cubs and Wrigley Field to his son, Philip Knight Wrigley more commonly referred to as PK. PK was not the baseball guy that his father had, but like his father, he was interested in tinkering with the old ballpark and making the field better. So in 1937, he initiated the construction of all new bleachers, during the season, no less. Like I said, he wasn't super interested in what was going on the field, to the point that he didn't mind doing major construction while the team was playing. Enter. Bill Veck Jr., the hero of the bleachers. He was the son of Bill Vec, who had been the Cub's president for many years when William Wrigley was the owner. Bill Vec junior decided to build concrete bleachers instead of wood with a brick wall that curved gently around the outfield instead of the really deep, somewhat pointy center field they'd had up until that time. The new dimensions of the field were going to be three hundred and fifty five. 368, 400, 368, and 353 from left to right field foul poles. The entire 1937 season, the Cubs played with a wooden wall separating the field from the construction, and nobody sat out in the bleachers. Obviously, there were none. On September 4th, though, the brand new bleachers were finally opened. Along with the curving brick wall, Bill Veck was also responsible for adding the Boston Ivy and the old scoreboard, both of which are hallmarks of the Wrigley Field experience. He'd also wanted trees that went up the steps on both sides of center field, but the wind kept blowing the leaves off of them, so they were basically just bare tree trunks with empty branches sticking off of them, so they looked really kind of nasty. Plus... They got blown over quite a bit, so that just never worked. Everyone agreed these bleachers were beautiful, but there was one problem. There was no batter's eye. When the bleachers first opened, they flowed all the way from right field through center field into left field. Right and left field were not separated as they are today. The 11.5 foot wall was not quite high enough, and that became an issue for hitters. They tried a number of things to make the center field seats work. They added a cover over it so the fans would be in the shade. They'd hoped that just the shade would be dark enough that the players could see the ball better. They added a net up and over that the ivy could climb, but nobody wanted to sit there because they couldn't see through the ivy very well. And it really didn't help the batters that much. Finally, they cordoned off that area and they put a tarpaul. This didn't last very long before they just simply emptied the space of seats and painted it green. And it stayed like that for quite a while. It wasn't until sometime in either 1995 or 96 that they installed the juniper bushes instead of just the empty green space. Now that was a rabbit hole with a dead end. I could never find anything that said the exact year. So if you know, hit me up at cubesfan on Twitter and let me know what year it did it and show me some proof. I would appreciate. It. Now above center field is the old scoreboard, a manually operated scoreboard with white letters depicting the different teams across the league. Of course, there were some differences back then, like the league had only 16 teams at the time, and now we have 30. The scoreboard has expanded, but there's still not enough room for six of the teams on any given day. And there was no clock. That wasn't added until 1942. It also had to accommodate for football, because Wrigley Field was the home of the Chicago Bears from the 1920s until the 70s, late 60s. Okay, I'm not following that rabbit hole very well. But this is the baseball rabbit hole, not the football rabbit hole. Okay, so the scoreboard would change batters to yards to go, the ball to down, the strike to quarter, and the rarely noticed by me at least center spot would say ball and would presumably have the yard line where the ball was sitting. The clock needed for football games would be situated over where it says outs during baseball games. I know that's not like a great description. It's really hard to kind of say what it looked like. So I would just suggest go look for the Wrigley scoreboard and the Chicago Bears and how it looked. Uh, It is pretty interesting. Of course, now, moving along, everyone knows that lights were added to Wrigley Field in 1988, but not in the bleachers. I mean, there are lights for spectators to be able to see and walk around, but there aren't lights that shine onto the field. All of those lights sit on the grandstand. This makes Wrigley Field the darkest outfield in the major leagues. It also means that beyond those few lights and mild alterations to the aesthetics, the bleachers really did not change from 1937 until 2005 when the Chicago Tribune did their first expansion of the bleachers. Since then, the bleachers have gotten torn out once, torn completely down once, and had video scoreboards added in left and right field. The juniper bushes were cut in half as a party area was sort of added up there uh, that you could access from inside the stadium and then look out over the field. And there's just been more total seats added along with other places around the field, and Wrigley now seats over 41,000 people. You can walk around the back of the bleachers and behind the scoreboard, which you could not do until 2006, but even then it was narrow, and that was expanded more in 2015 when the bleachers were completely redone. This this has also allowed for hallways and bullpens to be added underneath the bleachers. Prior to the 2015 renovations, The bullpens were still on the field just past first and third base. And that, finally, is where I was sitting that day recently watching the Cubs play the Brewers. While it was probably a case of negligence and penny pitching more than anything that kept the bleachers the same for almost 70 years, change was inevitable. But the things they have made sure to keep were the ivy and the scoreboard. So we still have that connection to the old times. And when I come back, I'm going down a rabbit hole about the guy who gave us our icons at Wrigley Field. Hey everybody, you know what this podcast needs? More listeners like you. If you want to help me out, please share this podcast around to your friends and let them all know that they should subscribe as well. Another way to support the podcast would be to give me a five-star rating somewhere on the internet wherever podcasts are rated. Thanks, and now back down the rabbit hole. When we think of baseball owners in the present, it's generally some billionaire who owns a team as a hobby like he would own a boat. Unless, of course, the owner is the son of a former owner and just had the team handed down to him, kind of like I just talked about with the Wrigley family. It's a status symbol for the elite of the elite, and for the most part, it's always been that way. But this rabbit hole takes us to Bill Veck, a name that I have mentioned a number of times in different innings of this show and was never that type of owner. What? No. As I said before, Bill Veck Jr. was born into a baseball family, having grown up learning about the game at his father's knee in Wrigley Field. Not that he was poor by any but his father worked for William Wrigley. And when his father, William Veck Sr., died in 1933... Bill Jr. had to leave college and go to work for P.K. Wrigley as an office boy for 18 bucks a week. He just didn't have enough money to continue with college. He cut his teeth in the baseball game at the ground level, literally, on the grounds crew at Wrigley Field, then also as a vendor in the stands and sometimes in the ticket booths. During that time, a man named Boots Weber had been running the Los Angeles Wrigley team, but was called in to replace Bill Sr., and he took Bill Jr. under his wing. Boots sent Bill to Northwestern University to learn accounting and law, and also to the Lewis Institute, which was a technical school where Bill learned design and blueprints. This is how he was able to work his way up to being in charge of construction when the entire outfield was being reshaped by the bleachers. Bill Veck and Boots Weber were baseball men, and as such, often came into conflict with the gum man who owned the team. When Boots Weber retired in 1940, Vec was looking for his way out as well. And in 1941, with the help of Chicago Cubs legend Charlie Grimm, and with various sources of financial backing, Vec bought the Milwaukee Brewers AAA team. While Vec could have probably stayed and worked with the Cubs, P.K. Wrigley wasn't progressive enough for Bill's ideas that had come from countless conversations with the fans at Wrigley Field. The Brewers were his chance to put his ideas into practice and see if he was right. Vec let Charlie Grimm get to work putting together a team. Teams at this time were not directly affiliated with MLB franchises, but they kind of had some connections there, I don't know, it was it was not the same sort of situation as we have now. But Charlie Grimm was on the team, and Bill put his efforts into changing the game and the fan experience. His ball games had entertainment beyond the game itself, like pig races and jazz bands and tightrope walkers. There had never been anything like it in baseball. Of course, the commissioner of the AAA League and the other owners hated it. As we know, commissioners and owners generally don't like anything that borders on fun. So his big ideas extended beyond just the frivolous. In 1942, Bill began plotting to buy a big league team that would be comprised completely of black players. This was five years before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, and Bill's plan wasn't for just one player to slowly push the door open for black players. He wanted to kick the door down with an entire team of Negro League players. He wanted to buy the Phillies, but the rest of the league's owners worked to find an owner for the Phillies that they deemed more suitable to their preferences, so it never happened. Vec owned the Brewers for five years, and they won the pennant three times. He really did try to focus on the team, but much of this happened while Vec himself was fighting in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Despite being overseas, he still used the newspaper war correspondence to get information back to Milwaukee so he could still continue to run the team. Now, he was soon back in the U.S. due to a very serious injury that would ultimately claim his right leg below the knee. He spent 15 months out of the 21 months that he served in hospitals just trying to recover. but. He never did stop running the AAA Brewers. In 1945, Vec sold the Brewers. After five years of happy fans and good teams, Milwaukee's value had jumped considerably. and He was able to turn a profit of $275,000, which is the equivalent of $4.3 million in today's value. Then, he got to work on breaking into the big leagues. In 1946, as the head of an ownership group, which included Bob Hope, he was able to purchase the Cleveland Indians. Bill knew baseball, he knew stadiums, and more importantly, he knew what the fans wanted. He immediately tore out all the women's bathrooms and redid them to make them as nice as possible for the women who also loved baseball. He also had a kind of daycare where the mothers could drop off their kids for a while so they could go back to their seats and enjoy the game. He was the first, and quite possibly still, the only man to own a team that realized two-thirds of the population were women and children, so he specifically marketed to them. It was a tactic that proved successful, even though very few others have really ever followed his lead. It wasn't just the ballpark experience that he improved either. He put all the games on the radio. At the time, only some of the games would be broadcast each week. With Bill as the owner, the fan base was able to grow because they could follow the team each day. He also invented season tickets and was the first to utilize the phone so people could purchase tickets right from the comfort of their own home and not have to go to the ballpark. He was a pioneer in the sport in every way, and it led to 2.6 million fans entering through the turnstiles in 1948 which was the most any team had ever done to that point. Of course, being the free thinker that he was, Bill Veck's ideas weren't always good. In 1947, Veck installed a portable center field fence at the spacious Cleveland Municipal Stadium. He would, have, he would move the fence in and out, series to series, depending on whether he thought it would benefit Cleveland being close or deep. The fence moved up to 15 feet at different times during the season. In 1948, the league created a rule to make it illegal to move the fences. That wasn't his finest moment, but another thing he did in 1947 might have been. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the National League on April 15, 1947, and Larry Doby broke the color barrier in the American League a few months later on July 5th for Cleveland at Comiskey Park against the White Sox. In 1948... Despite the pushback he got with the Dobie signing, Vec doubled down and added a 42-year-old, possibly quite a bit older, Satchel Paige to the team. The two former Negro League players helped lead Cleveland to the 1948 World Series Championship, despite the fact that they couldn't move the fences around anymore. In 1949, Vec invited 14 black players to spring training, and during the season, Minnie Mignoso became the first Afro-Latino player in MLB, and Larry Easter joined the team later in August. Only the Brooklyn Dodgers had as many black players by 1949 as Cleveland, making those two teams the leaders of their respective leagues in the integration of baseball. Unfortunately for Bill, 1949 was a tough year both professionally and personally. Cleveland finished third that year, eight games behind the New York Yankees, and Vec's wife, Eleanor, filed for divorce. Vec's job was being the owner of the Cleveland Indians, and the team made up most of his assets. So he was forced to sell the team as a consequence of his divorce. Although disappointing, Vec never stopped being a baseball guy, and he re entered the league in 1951 as the owner of the St. Louis Browns. At that time, The Browns and the Cardinals shared a field, but the Browns owned Sportsman's Park and the Cardinals were just renting. Vec hated the Cardinals, as every young boy that grew up as a Cubs fan does, and did everything he could to try and force them out of town. He started, in maybe the most petty way possible, by decorating Sportsman's Park exclusively in St. Louis Brown's paraphernalia. So even when the Cardinals were playing, it still looked like the Browns' home ballpark. He also hired former Cardinal greats Rogers Hornsby and Marty Marion as managers to try and pull fans away from the Cardinals. In the announcing booth was none other than Cardinals Hall of Fame pitcher and leader of the Gas House gang, Dizzy Dean. The Cardinals did almost leave St. Louis, but it was because their owner was convicted of tax evasion rather than anything Vec did. As an owner of one of the less popular clubs, second even in his own town, Vec came up with a proposal in 1952 for television revenue sharing. Of course, the Yankees were not fans of this, and were able to persuade enough of the other teams to vote with them that Vec's idea was shot down. In protest, Vec refused to allow other teams to broadcast any games against the Browns on television. In response to that, MLB took away Friday night games in St. Louis, which were the most lucrative ball games of the week for any baseball team. And he was ahead of the game because now revenue sharing is the norm across baseball. The troubles didn't really end there either, because the Cardinals were then purchased by the family that owned Anheuser-Busch and suddenly had a ton of money to keep them going. Once the Cardinals had that new, very rich owner, Vec realized he was never going to be able to run them out of St. Louis. So he started looking for places to move the Browns. He originally wanted to go back to Milwaukee with the team in 1953, but the Boston Braves, who now owned the AAA Brewers, had the major league rights to the area and blocked the move. Apparently, Boston thought that was a great idea, Because they actually moved the Boston Braves to Milwaukee that very same season. In the offseason of 1953, Vec worked out a deal with a Baltimore ownership group to move the Browns to Maryland. The league blocked this move, though, because he would have remained the principal owner of the team. Once he realized the other owners were simply trying to run him out of the league, he surrendered and sold the rest of his interest in the team just so he could get away. But Bill Vack was not done. Six years later, he became the head of yet another ownership group that purchased the Chicago White Sox. Charles Comiskey had been causing all sorts of problems for his sister because she received the majority of the shares for the White Sox when her mother died. He'd been so annoying to her that she was ready to sell. Vec's group made the first offer, but she decided she'd rather just give her shares to her brother and let him buy it. Except that fell through when he offered a million dollars less than Vec's group. So Bill Vec became the owner of yet another baseball team. The other owners really still didn't want him in the league, but he had been able to figure out a way to kind of sneak in the back door. And this time it really was going to be a contentious run. Charles Comiskey was not happy that his sister had sold her shares. He was constantly fighting with Vec and the rest of the ownership. Vec couldn't put too much into it, though, because he was the majority shareholder. So he went to work running the White Sox. As he always did, Vec went to work on the ballpark. His first move was to make Comiskey Park more accommodating to the women who came out of the ballpark. And he created the most lavish women's bathroom ever. publicized it by holding a contest to give the women's bathroom an official name. The winning entry by the way was the Hall of Femme. Everybody loves a good pun huh? Anyway the White Sox had their most successful year ever with a home attendance of 1.4 million and the team won the AL pennant for the first time in 40 years. The next year Vec added the exploding scoreboard to Comiskey. To shot fireworks for all the White Sox home runs. Once again, they broke their record with 1.6 million fans that year. Although he was the head of the ownership group of the White Sox, Vec made an offer to try and get the expansion team that was going to be located in California, that eventually became the Angels. He would have been a minority owner in that deal with Hall of Fame Detroit Tiger Hank Greenberg as the majority owner. Unfortunately. Walter O'Malley, the owner of the Dodgers, found out that Vec was a part of the deal and he vetoed it, keeping Vec from owning his fourth different MLB franchise. In 1961, he sold his share of the White Sox due to health issues. It turned out that Vec had a chronic concussion, most likely brought on from the battle in the war that had set him home and claimed his leg years earlier. The only thing he could do was, was settled down and retire somewhere to rest, which of course did not last forever. In 1975, Art Allen, the same person Bill Vack had sold the majority stake to back in 1961, was going bankrupt and couldn't cover the costs of running the White Sox anymore. Allen reached out to Bill, who jumped at the chance. But again, it wasn't going to be easy. MLB was working on plans to move the White Sox to Seattle, where they'd started and ended a team in 1969 and were being sued because of it. That is what the owners wanted, so they denied Vec his second chance, unless he could come up with another $1.2 million and change the entire financial structure of the organization that was purchasing the team. It was a seemingly impossible task. The only way Vec was able to pull it off was to basically structure the company in a way that took away almost all of the advantages of being a baseball owner financially. But he did it anyway, because by the time he jumped through all the hoops, he really just wanted to be back in the game. And the fact that he'd get to rub it in the face of all those owners that didn't want him in the league, that was just icing on the cake. So Vec bought the White Sox for a second time in 1975, even with all the opposition he got from the other owners. That same offseason, the MLB Players Union won the right to free agency, a situation which would eventually lead to Belvec not being able to afford to run the Chicago White Sox. Despite that, he had actually been advocating for the owners to negotiate and compromise with the players prior to the 1976 lockout. He thought the owners and players could come to an agreement on a seven year contract structure. But the owners wanted none of it. When the owners locked the players out in the spring of 76, he was the only owner to vote against the lockout. He was also the only one to have spring training that year. Vec found a loophole in the lockout rules. He wasn't allowed to deal with the players on the roster, but that didn't mean there weren't players out there. He opened camp with non-roster players and free agents. It wasn't a very good group, since they were all from the White Sox farm system or players that the other teams had discarded, but he did have the only team in spring training. So, the White Sox got all the coverage. Vec used that coverage to promote his team in order to sell more tickets and let everyone know the White Sox were going to be fun again, despite finishing last the season before. And it worked. On opening day, Vec took part in a reenactment of The Spirit of 76, which is the painting of the three Minutemen in the Revolutionary War playing the fife and drums. Comiskey Park hosted over 40,000 fans that day to see him do this and to kick off the season and Vic's second ownership of the White Sox. Of course, that was the best it was going to get in 1976. After that, the Sox went on to finish dead last in the American League West. Vec was losing money on the team. But with free agency being brand new to the league, he figured out that he might be able to game the system a bit to give his team a chance. In 1977, he put together a better team than he had by trading prospects for big league players in the final year of their deals with the other teams. It was called Rent-A-Player because the players would be free agents at the end of the year. But for 1977, it worked. He traded for big bats and strong relief pitching. The starting pitching wasn't good and the defense was bad, but the White Sox hit Dongs better than anyone in the league, except for the Red Sox, who had the advantage of tiny Fenway Park. The Big Boppers brought the fans out to Comiskey Park, and while Vec had them there, he kept them entertained. This is the year that singing Na Na Hey Hey Kiss Him Goodbye, the 1969 song from the band Steam, became a part of sports. Whenever a pitcher would leave the game, the song would play and the Comiskey faithful would serenade him off the field. You know which song I'm talking about. Na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Yeah, we've all heard it. And it started in Comiskey with Bill Vec. In 1977, the south side was the place to be the team won 90 games and broke their all-time attendance record, which had been set by Vec's 1960 White Sox team. Unfortunately, the Royals and Rangers went on a late-season tear and ended with 102 and 94 wins respectively, keeping the White Sox out of the playoffs in third place. In 77, the White Sox had turned their first profit in years, but Vec, always the blue-collar owner, and never a millionaire with a hobby, began to get beat out every offseason by owners with deeper pockets. He just couldn't afford to keep up with the other teams in free agency. Despite having various promotions at the ballpark, including the most infamous ever to take place in a professional sport, Vec was forced to sell the team in 1981. After the sale of the White Sox, Bill Vec switched his fandom from the team he had owned twice as an adult back to the team he'd loved as a child. He spent the last years of his life as a Cubs fan and spent his summers sitting in the bleachers. He died in 1986 of cancer at the age of 71. And more than any other person, Vec's fingerprints are all over Chicago baseball. Many of the things that baseball fans in Chicago love to this day were the brainchild of Bill Vec. When I come back, I will tell you some more about Bill Vex Wilder Side in Baseball. For now, let's take a quick break. Hey there. Apparently, I am really bad at marketing this podcast or even making it possible for people to give me money because they just enjoy the show and feel like my effort is worth throwing a bone to, I guess. If you do want to support the show so that I keep making more, you can just give me some money at Paypal.me forward slash M C O T T O N two Zero One Nine. That's PayPal.me forward slash Mcotton 2019. I really appreciate it and I'll shout you out in the show. Thanks. Now back to the rabbit hole. I did it again, I guess. I thought the Wrigley bleachers would be a quick topic to hit but I'm never sure where the rabbit hole is going to take me. Well, I promised to keep this last segment somewhat brief, but no show about Bill Veck would be complete we didn't talk about his wild promotions. Hey. As I said, Veck's fingerprints are all over Chicago baseball. Down in Comiskey, Veck installed the exploding scoreboard, which is just as big an icon on the south side as the old scoreboard in Wrigley is for the north side. When they tore down old Comiskey Park, they moved the scoreboard into new Comiskey Park. Maybe I should stop here real quick to let everyone know that the stadium currently known as Guaranteed Rate, and had been U.S. Cellular, was actually called Comiskey Park from 1991 through 2002. Another thing that made the move from the old to the new was the shower. Yep, that's what I said. Vec heard the complaints of all the fans in the bleachers talking about how hot it was during day game, So he had a shower installed in the center field concourse so people could go over and cool off. That shower is still at New Comiskey, but I'm not sure how many people actually use it anymore. Many people also may not be aware that Harry Carey, inextricably linked to the Chicago Cubs, was actually an announcer on the south side first. After Harry Carey lost a job in St. Louis for, getting on the owner's bad side, allegedly, Carey spent a year in Oakland and then got hired by Vec for the White Sox job. Vec noticed Harry singing along when Nancy Faust played Take Me Out to the Ball Game on her organ. He wanted Harry to actually sing for the crowd. Harry did not want to. Legend goes that on opening day 1977, Vec turned a mic on without Harry's knowledge and it broadcasted out to the stadium. The crowd loved it, and that was the day a baseball tradition was born, all because of Vec. From that point on, Harry would sing with the crowd at each game. This was the first time that this had really ever been done. We know that the song was very old, and it's been around for a long time, but the idea that the crowd would all sing it along with a guest conductor or Harry Carey or whoever didn't actually get started until 1977. After Vex sold the team in 1981, Harry was soon out the door as well, and he took his act up to Wrigley Field in 1982, and WGN broadcast him singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game across the country. This was the Superstation era, and only Atlanta and the Cubs really had this sort of reach. And Harry Carey became a sensation, singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Harry died in 1998, but to this day, the Cubs and Cubs fans honor Harry Carey by singing during the stretch every game. No doubt. Bill Veck joined in at the end of his life, singing along with the rest of the fans out in the bleachers. Take Me Out to the Ball Game wasn't much of a wild thing, but Vec was known for wild promotions during games. And as far back as when he owned Cleveland, he would do things like give a random fan a ladder or a greased pig or a $1,000 frozen in a block of ice. Also, he and other fans could laugh as the lucky winner tried to take their prize back to their seat. One night, after receiving a letter from a fan named Joe Early about how there were all these nights dedicated to different people, but there was never anything for the regular fan. So Bill Vec decided to dedicate a night to Joe Early, the regular fan. Joe and his wife were brought out onto the field where Bill Veck read the letter from Joe and announced that he would be receiving fabulous gifts as a thank you for being a great Cleveland fan. The first gift was a new house built in early American architectural style. A truck rolled out onto the field with a dilapidated outhouse on the back of it, making the crowd roar with laughter. Then he announced that Joe was getting a car and they brought out an old Busted Model T filled with young female models. Vec had the crowd going, just laughing at everything he was doing as he announced plenty of gag gifts throughout the presentation. But there were a lot of other gifts for Joe Early, and many of them weren't jokes, like an actual nice car, a 1949 Ford convertible to be precise, appliances for Early's home like a dishwasher and washing machine, which... Back in the early 50s, not everyone had. And he also got a lifetime pass that allowed him to go to any American League game in any ballpark for the rest of his life. That was the one that Joe Early was the most excited about. In St. Louis, when Vec owned the Browns, he took his stunts right to the team. On August 19, 1951, Veck signed Eddie Goodell a 3-foot, 7-inch dwarf, and sent him to the plate against the Detroit Tigers. He was so small, it was nearly impossible to throw a strike against him. He walked on four pitches, skipped up to first base, and was replaced by a pinch runner. The very next day, MLB made a rule that the commissioner could void any contract in the league so that they could get rid of Goodell, and keep Vec from pulling other stunts with players that they thought were making a mockery of the game. But the reality was, Vec kind of just wanted to have a little fun, and sending a little person out to the plate was kind of what people back then thought was fun. But the craziest and most destructive stunt that Vec ever pulled was at Comiskey Park in 1979. It was in vogue to hate on disco music in the late 70s, and probably more so in Chicago, where a very popular DJ, that I will not make, pushed the disco sucks idea on his show all the time. Vec decided to work with the DJ and put together a disco demolition night in between games of a doubleheader. Fans would come to Comiskey Park for baseball and bring disco records, which would be put in a large box and blown up. The White Sox were not very good, and were only drawing around 15,000 fans a night. They were hoping this stunt would bring in about an extra 5,000 fans. Well, it was successful beyond their dreams, as the games sold out, and there were thousands outside that could not even get in. The official count was 47,000, but there were too many people for the security staff, and VAC estimated that there were actually over 50,000 in the ballpark. Here's something everyone should probably keep in mind just in general. When you ask people to come to any event for the sole purpose of hating on something, you might not get the type of people that are easy to get along with. The White Sox learned this the hard way. The overpacked stadium was filled with unruly fans waiting to see the explosion. The explosion itself was a bad idea as it, quite predictably, blew a large hole in center field. Also. Flaming pieces of vinyl records littered the field. As if that wasn't enough, thousands of fans rushed the field and set fire to their own records, or climbed the foul poles, or stole bases, or stole team equipment, or just fought with one another out on the field. Bill Vec pleaded with the crowd to return to their seats, even as a disco bonfire burned out in center field. The second game of that doubleheader was not played. The White Sox had to forfeit because the stunt they pulled was the reason the field and situation was unfit for baseball. 39 people were arrested that night, and there were quite a number of injuries, but none of them were really serious. That was the last American League game in history to be forfeited. And before I fall down the rabbit hole looking at the last National League game that got forfeited, I'm going to call it the end of the inning. You're out. As always, thank you for spending some time with me delving into these baseball rabbit holes. I really appreciate it. And until next time, keep rounding those bases. This is the part of the show where I tell everybody all the wonderful things that I did, like researching this stuff and writing the script and reading it and doing all that, editing everything. Uh unfortunately on this one, I don't think I did that great a job. I'm sorry about that, but if I ever want to get this thing done, I got to give up at some point and just say, this is going to be good enough, even though it's not as good as some of the others. I apologize for that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. And it is time for Danny Rocket to take us out. Around the internet Sit back and enjoy the show, down the baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole.